Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our exploration of Anmol Sam Kindry's testimony with a cross-examination led by defense attorney Corey Shirafasi. On today's episode, we take a look at the testimonies offered by officers Pep Moretti and Jason Krieger, the two Kenosha policemen Kyle Rittenhouse approached as they sat in their police vehicle on Sheridan Road immediately following the shootings. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over the course of the next few episodes, we are going to break our pattern of presenting the Rittenhouse trial testimony in the order that the state called the witnesses. On today's episode, we will present the testimonies of Officer Pep Moretti, who testified immediately after the Kindry brothers on Friday, November 5th, 2021, and Officer Jason Krieger, who testified on Monday, November 8th, 2021. Next week, we will begin our examination of the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz, one of the three men who was shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, and the only one of those three who survived the shootings. Grosskreutz was the first witness to testify on Monday, November 8th. After we finish our coverage of his testimony, we will return to the other witnesses who testified on November 5th. Prosecutor James Krause calls Officer Pep Moretti to the stand. Moretti's hair is dark and short. He is clean-shaven and wears his Kenosha police uniform, along with a utility vest and belt that appear to be stocked with his firearm, walkie-talkie, and other tools of the law enforcement trade. Moretti tells Krauss that he and his partner, Officer Jason Krieger, were on patrol in the downtown area of Kenosha, approximately three blocks north and two blocks east of the 63rd Street car source dealership. Prosecutor Krauss asks Moretti to share the details of how he became aware of the shootings. At any point that evening, were you made aware of uh, a potential shooting? Yes. Officer Krieger and I were at 60th and 60th Street and 11th Ave, and we heard gunfire. And then a few moments after that, dispatch advised that they were receiving calls that there were shots being fired in the 6300 block of Sheridan Road. So what did, let me ask this way, who, we guys were in a squad car. Uh, we were actually, I believe, out on foot at that point at 16th and 11th, and we could hear gunfire in a close proximity to us. So then what did you do? We re-entered our patrol vehicle, and then we responded toward the sound of where the gunfire was coming from, which would have been uh, roughly the 6300 block of Sheridan Road. And who was driving? I was. And then Officer Krieger would be in the passenger seat? That's correct. So... You were at 60th and 11th, did you just drive right down 60th Street? Correct, we proceeded east on 60th to Sheridan Road, and then I made a right turn to face south on Sheridan Road. 
Moretti explains that as he and Krieger were facing south on Sheridan Road, they could see a large crowd of people ahead of them and what appeared to be a few injured individuals on the ground. Prosecutor Krauss asked Moretti for context regarding how he and his partner approached those circumstances. Now, in this sort of situation where there's potential, this ongoing violence, what is your, what are you trained to do? What are you trying to do at that point? So for a situation like that, uh, the first thing that we would do is if there's an active threat, we're trying to stop the threat. And then after that, it's life-saving measures to try to render aid and um, preserve life at that point. So were you going to do that from 60th and Sheridan, or were you trying to get closer? So we were trying to get closer, but information was put out over the radio that there was rifle gunfire taking place, and we're in a standard patrol vehicle. There's no ballistic protection on our patrol vehicles, and our vests at that point were only rated for handguns. And we weren't equipped to head into what we believed to be an active shooter at that point with the equipment that we had with just the two of us being there. I noticed there were armored vehicles behind us, so I reversed our patrol car and moved it off to the side so that the armored vehicles that were equipped to handle something like that could pass us. So you were, you were waiting for the armored the Bearcats, as they're somewhat ca sometimes called, to go past you, and you're going to follow them into the seat. That's correct. What, if anything, happened next? Um, the Bearcats, I believe, began to pass us on the left, so we were in the curb lane, and um, I believe there was, I'm not sure how many there were, but a few Bearcats, I believe, passed us, and then there was, a at that time, unknown white male approaching us in the roadway toward the, the front of our patrol vehicle. And now as you're sitting here, do you know who that unknown white male was? Yes. Who was it? Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. And uh, you had never seen him before? No. And uh, when you see this unknown white male, who we now know as Kyle Rittenhouse, what do you observe? He had a, a rifle that was slung um, and somehow attached to his body. Um, he had his hands uh, somewhat similar to this, and he was approaching us in the roadway toward the front of our patrol vehicle. We, my partner and I, Officer Krieger, gave him multiple commands to get out of the roadway and step to the side so we could proceed and try to get to uh, where we'd observe people ahead in the roadway that needed assistance. Now, were you giving these commands? Were you shouting out the window? Did you have some sort of... Uh, system you're giving commands how are you giving these commands to um, um, I, re I recall officer Krieger um, yelling out the passenger window we had our windows down so that we could hear um, gunfire that was taking place to try to determine how close it was to us if anyone were to approach us from behind or the sides and I believe at one point I used our squad's PA system which is a, a loudspeaker and a, that has a microphone and what you said, was that directed at Mr. Rittenhouse or the crowd in general? At Mr. Rittenhouse. We were giving him instructions to get out of the roadway and essentially get out of our way so we could get to where we believe the problem to be. As Mr. Rittenhouse was approaching the vehicle, were there other people in your way or was he the primary uh, person blocking you from going down there? At that point, he was the, the only one in the way. So you, you indicated that Mr. Rittenhouse's hands were kind of up? That's correct. And uh, you said he had a rifle? Yes. Did you think that that might be the person who is, could have been involved in the shooting? At that point, no. 
Um, in my prior experience in law enforcement, when somebody surrenders to us, they will generally put their hands up, but then they will take a, a further step and generally drop to their knees, or they will lay in a, a prone position and make some type of further action. They'll usually follow commands when they're attempting to surrender. I've never in my career had somebody um, put their hands up and continue to advance and disobey orders from us to not advance on us. And were there other people out that night that had rifles and firearms? We were surrounded all night, all week by, I, there was probably more people armed with weapons than, than not throughout that entire course of the civil unrest. So seeing someone with an AR-15 wouldn't necessarily mean much to you at that point? At that point in time that night, no. I had encountered throughout, throughout that entire shift I, like I said, I probably spoke to more people that had pistols and rifles and baseball bats and, and you name it than not. And there were also, I couldn't even tell you how many people came up to me throughout the night that had a rifle and would come up to say, hey, I'm not trying to do anything. I just want to talk to you. And the advice that, uh, the advice that my partner and I gave everybody that night was if you're a supporter of us or you're here to try to help, go home. There's a curfew in place for a reason and being out here is only causing more problems. It's harder to tell who's there to be a problem and who's not. After Moretti clarifies that he was only guided to take into custody and issue curfew citations to the most severe cases of civil disturbance, particularly those instances where someone discharged their firearm, Prosecutor Kraus returns the witness to his encounter with Kyle Rittenhouse. So this uh, man we now know as Kyle Rittenhouse is approaching you um, there's commands over the PA, there's commands being shouted. What's the next thing that happens? Uh, he approached the passenger side of our patrol vehicle. Um, with him disobeying the commands and being armed with a rifle like that, I drew my service weapon and Officer Krieger deployed pepper spray because it became clear and obvious that he was not going to go away, that he continued to just advance on us and disobey commands. Now, you say you were still driving the vehicle, correct? Correct. So when you draw your service weapon, what does that mean? What did you do with it? Um, so anytime we're confronted with somebody that's armed and that could be a threat to us, it's not uncommon for police officers in this country to be ambushed. And given everything that was taking place, a, a war zone is the only way I could describe it. We were surrounded, the city was burning and on fire and we were just outnumbered and completely surrounded. So with his advance with that weapon, um, we were in a stop position at that point and we're waiting for him to get out of the front of our vehicle so we could advance. And as he approached the passenger side, I was able to use my right hand to withdraw my weapon and then keep my left hand on the steering wheel. So did you point the weapon or just kind of point it at him or just have it ready? What were you doing with it? I would imagine that I would have had it pointed at him because that somebody advancing on us with the rifle not obeying commands at that point would be taken as a threat. After Kraus establishes with Moretti that the property damage from civil disturbance was more severe the night before the shootings than on the night of the shootings, he returns to Moretti's encounter with Rittenhouse. You said you drew your weapon and Officer Krieger uh, deployed pepper spray. Were you able to see if the pepper spray had any impact or hit Mr. Rittenhouse? I'm not sure if it made contact with him, but his deployment of the pepper spray had the desired effect because he um, began uh, I think he continued northbound at that point and got away from us. After the encounter with Rittenhouse, Moretti and Krieger drove south on Sheridan Road, where they encountered the injured Gage Grosskreutz. 
Because there was constant gunfire around them during this time, Moretti and his partner believed that there was an active shooting threat. They then escorted the police bearcat carrying Gage Grosskreutz to the hospital. There, Moretti explains, he was told by one of the doctors that a man who would later be identified as Joseph Rosenbaum had died of gunshot wounds. Moretti proceeded to photograph Mr. Rosenbaum's body, placed his clothes and belongings in an evidence locker, moved Mr. Rosenbaum's corpse into a body bag, and took the body to the hospital morgue. With that, James Krause concludes his direct examination of Officer Pep Moretti. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Defense attorney Corey Sharafasi begins his cross-examination by asking Officer Moretti to reestablish the atmosphere on the night of the shootings. So, Officer Moretti, you had uh, directly described that scene uh, as a war zone, is that right? Correct. Um, and it was like that, tell me if this is right, on the 23rd, evening of the 23rd, 24th, and into the 25th? Yes, there was escalating uh, damage and violence that was taking place over the nights. And in your, all of your time as an officer, have, have you ever been involved in nights like that? Nothing to this magnitude, no. And I think you said more people were armed than not armed? Correct. Can I ask you this? So you were working on the, on the 24th and the 25th? Yes. You had said there was more damage more fires on the 24th and the 25th. Is that right? Uh, that would be my feeling, yes. Were there more people protecting buildings that you saw on the 25th than on the 24th? I did observe more people that were armed out in places. I don't know exactly what their alleged function or intended role would be. Um, I didn't have many conversations with people that were, that were out there. We did notice some heightened security. Okay, so my question was, more people that were protecting the businesses, the less fires that you saw. True? I don't know that I would equate those two, no. The city was... Well, um, there was more fires on the 24th than the 25th. That's what you said. Right? I don't have a report written that would indicate the amount of fires that were, that were started, and I would just be going back and, and using memory to try to remember. I'm not certain... Um, the totality of the fires or how many fires were started and what nights they were. Sharafasi next replays the video recorded by an independent reporter named Brendan Gutenschwager who operates under the social media handle BG on the scene of Kyle Rittenhouse walking north on Sheridan Road and freezes the clip as we look up the street from behind the defendant who is facing vehicle lights about 100 feet away from him, one of which Officer Moretti acknowledges is his police car. You see at that point, do you see, you know that's Mr. Rittenhouse now, right? Correct, now, yes. Do you see him coming toward you at that point? From from our vehicle? Yeah. Yes. And are you, I know you had said you were outside your vehicle. Is it fair to say at that point you're back in your vehicle? At this point, yes, because we had just turned the corner. Okay. All right. 
And now he has his hands above his shoulders, kind of walking toward you. Is that right? Correct. Okay. The video plays again, and we hear a voice shouting. Stop them! Hey, do right here, just stop them! Can you hear those people yelling, that guy just shot someone? At this point in time, no. No, we cannot. Are you, are you backing up to let the Bearcat through, or are you backing? Is that the reason you're backing up? Um, at this point, uh, with watching this video, it would probably be dual purpose here. So I did want the Bearcats to be able to get around us. And as you saw twice there, Mr. Rittenhouse did manipulate his rifle as he's walking toward us, like in this part right here. His hands are not above his head. They're actually down toward the rifle. So that's where my partner and I were going through the process of wondering what this is. Okay, very good. Sharafasi asks the AV technician to resume the video, and we hear someone shouting at Rittenhouse to get down and get out of the road. At that point, is that you yelling, get out of the road? Do you hear that? Yes, I, I heard it. I'm not certain if that's uh, Officer Krieger or myself. I believe both of us were yelling at him to get out of the road. Okay. And um, you had, I think you had said to uh, Attorney Krause that normally in your experience, people who are surrendering, they'll put their hands up, but they'll do other things, correct? Correct. They'll usually get down on their knees or prone themselves out and follow instructions that we're giving them. Right. You're not giving him any instructions to get on his knees or lay down. That's correct. Okay. So when you say people do things like, like do this and then lay on the ground, that's done at your direction. Not necessarily. I've had quite a few experiences where when somebody does uh, have a desire to surrender to us, they will do that on their own because they're aware that they're armed and their intent is to surrender and they don't, they don't want something else to happen. So. And it's also what police officers are dictating to them what to do, right? Oh, absolutely. Get down, hands behind your back, or whatever it is. That Correct. You yeah, instructions will be given at that point as well. Fair. So, at this point, it's your, and I'm not being critical, it's your testimony that at this point, you have no idea that he's done anything, Mr. Rittenhouse has done anything wrong. That's correct. Do you ever made contact with him about him having a firearm in public? No. Do you ever want to get any information that he might have as to why he's walking toward you with his arms up like this? Yes, that would be something that we would do secondary. Um, as I stated earlier, when you still have gunfire that's actively taking place, there's victims that need assistance and there's um, you know, still potentially a threat that's got to be stopped. So those take priority over, over collecting names and information at that point. Now, to be fair, in hindsight, the person who was involved in this was, for lack of a better term, you didn't know it at the time, but he was surrendering to you. That's, that's quite possible, yes. Soon after that, Sharafasi wraps up his cross-examination. Prosecutor Krauss clears up a few minor details on redirect. The witness is excused, and Judge Bruce Schrader adjourns court for the day. Late in the day, on the following Monday, November 8th, 2021, Officer Moretti's partner, Jason Krieger, is called to the stand. Krieger has short-cropped, dirty blonde hair and wears the Kenosha police uniform and equipment vest and belt. Prosecutor Krauss asks him about the individual who approached their vehicle at 60th and Sheridan Road. Who approached your vehicle? 
there was a younger male. Uh, he was dressed in a t-shirt and leave cargo shorts, and uh, he was carrying an AR-15 style assault rifle, and he had his hands raised, and he had, believe he was carrying a medic bag as well. Did you hear anything that the crowd was shouting in relation to this individual? I did not hear any specific phrases. There was just a lot of noise, a lot of background noise, and in my mind, I was more focused on hearing the gunshots and trying to figure out where they were coming from. I didn't necessarily hear any specific words the crowd was shouting toward me. So what do you do as this uh, person is approaching you on the street? As I watched him approach, I was giving him verbal commands to keep away from my squad. I did not want anybody coming up to directly to my squad that could be a potential threat. So I was, we were giving him verbal commands uh, just to stay back. I had also grabbed my pepper spray out of my vest and was going to use it if the individual continued to approach the car. Why did you see him as a threat? I never met him before. Uh, he had a rifle. Given the fact the situation at hands, uh, there was a lot of circumstances where I just did not want some individual coming up to my squad car in that scene with those gunshots still going off um, that I didn't necessarily know. Uh, you said you said his hands were up, correct? I believe so. Yes. Did you feel like he was surrendering to you? No. Why not? Throughout the um, past few days, we've come across a lot of individuals who are armed, and the first thing they do is put their hands up to signal that they don't mean any threat to us. doesn't mean that they were surrendering. It just means that they just wanted us to see their hands. Um, hands are the most, I mean, they typically indicate if a threat is going to be present. So if we can see their hands, we, we generally know there's no threat there. What happened next? The individual approaching our car was not responding to my verbal commands. Um, so I shook the OC can, made it, made sure it was able to discharge the spray. And uh, I pointed it at him, the individual and I discharged a stream of OC spray towards direction when he, when he would not listen to my commands. At that point, how close was he to your, and you were in the passenger side? Yes. At that point, how close was he to your passenger side door? I believe he was within about five feet. Do you know if the spray hit him or not? I do not recall. Uh, did the spray have the desired effect of him getting away from the vehicle? Yes, he ended up walking away from me. After Krieger explains that he joined Officer Moretti in accompanying Gage Grosskreutz to the hospital and joined his partner in processing and collecting evidence from the deceased Joseph Rosenbaum, Rittenhouse attorney Corey Sharofsky rises for cross-examination. After establishing that Krieger heard gunshots before responding to the dispatch call with his partner, Sharofsky asks the witness about his encounter with the defendant. Do you recall seeing... Um a person that you now know to be Mr. Rittenhouse walking toward your, toward your squad car. Yes. Okay. And um, to be fair, he has his hands like this, right? Yes. Okay. And I understand that you said that, uh, tell me if I'm right, throughout that evening, uh, people maybe who had firearms, when they saw you, they put their hands up 
so you knew that they weren't a threat to you. Yes. Um, this is also, to be fair, um, a way that someone could surrender. Yes, it could. Okay. And uh, yeah, don't take this as being critical. I'm not trying to be that way. But as he's walking toward you, he doesn't have at that point his hands on his gun, but he's just walking toward your vehicle, right? Yes. And I understand your concern, but as he's getting closer to you, um, after knowing that a shot or shots had just been fired, I know there's a lot going on, but were you interested in finding out if he had any information? I was. Okay. And when he starts coming to the side, he's coming to your side, right? Yes. Um, do you hear him like say anything to you? The only thing I can remember him saying was something about a shooting. Um, that there was no other verbal indication from him coming directly saying it was me. It was just something about a shooting. I did recognize the individual from the video, and I, into my mind, I believe he looked familiar. Do you tell anybody at that point? Like, look, I, I'm putting these together. The guy that has hands up, that's the guy we're probably looking for. Yes. Okay. Do you ever ask him for identification? No. Do you ever uh, ask him or do anything with the fact that he's possessing an AR-15? No. Sharafasi concludes his cross-examination. On redirect, Prosecutor Krauss asks a few more questions as seek to clarify the officers had no way of knowing that Kyle Rittenhouse was the shooter. And with that, Officer Krieger is excused, and we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we begin our exploration of state witness Gage Grosskreutz, the last person that Rittenhouse shot and the only surviving complaining witness. And tune in to our next episode for our recap of the trial testimony that we covered this week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.